Welcome to the Untitled Investment Talk, the podcast about all things digital assets. Hi, the topic of this episode of our podcast is investments in early stage crypto projects. We will discuss what are promising targets, how to select them, what the next big thing, how to manage risks and when to exit. My name is Carl Michael, and as always, I'm joined by my dear colleague and Untitled Investment Expertise co-founder, Simon Schaber. Hi, Simon. Glad to be here. Uh, we have invited two amazing guests for this talk, who are deep experts in digital assets, crypto and blockchain. They have just launched their VC company, Smape Capital, and make their deep knowledge available to professional investors now. Welcome, Dr. Astrid Wulat, co-founder, general partner and CIO of Smape Capital. Great to have you with us, Astrid. Thanks for having me. Great. And Christian Niedermüller, co-founder and general partner of Smape. Hi, Christian. Yeah, hi, guys. Okay, I would say this is a kind of family talk here because we know each other from Investment Natives, a group of investment professionals uh, which share knowledge and co-invest in the new economy not only in crypto and uh, digital assets. Family talks can be nice, but they can be challenging. Let's see how it goes today. But before we start, to our listeners, our talk here reflects personal opinions only of the four of us. So Astrid, Christian, Simon and me, this is no investment or any other kind of advice. For your personal investments, we recommend to do your own research. Okay, now let's get going and start with our warm-up question. And uh, I address this question first to Astrid. Astrid, what brought you to the blockchain space? Uh, what was your moment of truth? Well, in general, I need to say I'm a technologist and love new innovations. So I love thinking about new business models. And when about like 2012, 2013, very good friends of mine started to work on Ethereum, I slowly got into this space and could uh, see what the potential of this technology was. And that really sparked my interest and kicked off my intro to this space. If there were only two cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin or Ether, which one would you choose? <laughs> Well, if there are only two, I would choose both because I think both are very good applications in their own kind of way. So, and I think that's also the, in general the, the the future of the blockchain space that it's not one chain to rule them all, but every infrastructure will have their own specific good use cases. Second try, Ether or Solana? <laughs> Well, Solana is a very promising ecosystem. I would love to see it being more decentralized as it is at the moment, but I think it has still a very bright future. And with Ethereum, I think we have all seen the issues with high gas fees, even after sort of the latest EIP that we had this year. And it's really a question of how fast they will be able to deliver on Ethereum 2.0. And Christian, what makes you passionate about digital assets? Uh, a lot, actually. It's the sheer speed and the reduction of complexity and the transparency. And that also brought me to the overall space that I, I saw what this could mean for traditional finance, where, where I'm coming from. And this attracted me uh, the most and still keeps me keeps me going. In the Maybe I'm a little bit more lucky with you. Bitcoin or Ether? 
Uh, that's a really difficult question uh, because <laughs> they, are so they are so different in their nature. So from a traditional finance perspective, I would more go with, with Ethereum, so with, with smart contracts, and rather not go with Bitcoin, which is like a financial asset uh, for me for, for now. So more Ethereum, let's put it that way. Okay, we have a clear clear voting here. I spare the question of Ether versus Solana with you and refer to whatever Astrid said. <laughs> Great. Now, you guys just somewhat recently set up a new crypto fund, SMAPE. Now, of course, first the big question, what does SMAPE actually stand for? SMAPE stands for Smart Perspectives. So we want to offer new smart perspectives when we, we want to find the new gems, we want to find those and offer our investors smarter perspectives on the overall digital asset ecosystem. Okay, great. I was already thinking it's short for smart apes, which of course also lends itself very well. Now, Astrid, you are focusing very heavily on early stage token investments. Um, why did you pick exactly this kind of uh, main focus? Well, there are several answers to that. On the one hand, we believe in the power of decentralization and the vision of Web3 and the potential of new business models that we can see there and sort of deriving value from participating in uh, networks. On the other hand, if you look at it as a financial instrument or investment instrument, it gives you much faster liquidity than you would get with equity. So the value accrual of the network usually um, kicks in much earlier than with equity, where you really need to wait for a long time until you can exit, need to wait until shareholders agree to it or until you get an IPO or whatever. And on the other hand, so why early stage token investments? This has the reason because when we anticipate another market crash, and this could always uh, be around the corner, let's put it that way, then what we have seen is it rarely ever falls to a level below the sort of private round prices. So this is why we also are more utilizing a pre-seed seed stage investment strategy versus a liquid token strategy. And maybe I'll talk the question because many VCs, even if they start investing into the blockchain space, they're still somewhat afraid of not at least taking some equity on top of the tokens. But as you mentioned, of course, there's many upsides to just taking tokens as, uh, for example, the liquidity point. Uh, why do you think so many VCs are struggling with getting the idea of equity as the be-all, end-all, being in the books out of their heads? I mean, equity has also some advantages because you have a better insight normally into how companies are run. You get more for updates. There are usually board meetings. There are certain rights associated to uh, particular shareholdings. So I kind of understand that some companies still want that, but I think that they're missing out on a huge opportunity there. I mean, on the other hand, in the web free space, also not always equity makes sense because often it is, you know, foundations that actually then emit those tokens. So, and these are by nature non-profit organizations. So why would you want to have equity in those kind of respects? There are some rare cases where we would also take equity and mostly that is actually for regulatory reasons, for example, for U.S. projects that mostly the route to the token is uh, via an equity vehicle. But we will also normally also, if, if we have to uh, do that, if the company equity will also really accrue value or not. Now, I see Christian is lifting his hand. Do you want to jump in there? 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, maybe something to add from, from my side here. I think invest more traditional investors like traditional VCs, they just need to get used to token as, a, as an instrument of value and understand better what it means to build up an ecosystem. And, and like, it's very hard to, to measure the value of an ecosystem. But once you've done that, and when, once you've seen how, how big a, an ecosystem can grow and how much value can be accrued in the ecosystem, you should not uh, shy away uh, from token investments, actually. It can be very interesting investments, yeah. Oh, absolutely understandable. Also, of course, in the light of the most recent, let's say, build-up of the DeFi industry, um, as Astrid, you mentioned, uh, many projects in the DeFi space, they're just non-profits. There's nothing really sticking with those entities. So owning part of that company and uh, being having rights to dividend payouts and profit participation isn't really that desirable. But as you mentioned, um, regulatory sides the regulatory side is another thing now as i've already mentioned DeFi has kind of been the big elephant in the room for the past one and a half years nfts are a bit more fresh of course we've been talking about nfts since 2017 since the latest 2018 but really then picking up and the mainstream picking up on nfts especially has really only happened this year 2021 but crypto is moving fast one year is completely different than the one before and the one after. Now, Astrid, what do you think? What's going to be the next big thing? Is it going to be play to earn, gaming, Axie Infinity-like stuff? Is it going to be uh, metaverse stuff, like even Facebook um, jumps on the hype train on that one? Is it going to be stuff like virtual reality chat? Is it going to be in Decentraland? Or are we already looking at something completely new and different? You also missed out on the DAO hype that has been starting this year, actually, and is slowly crawling up our shoulders. But no, I think that basically the, the metaverse still has a very bright future ahead of us. And we've only started to see the first kind of use cases sort of with fashion, with gaming. And I think this will be a more integral part of our everyone's lives. I think also that NFTs, we have seen the applications now with basically images or digital art, whatever you want to call it, coming up this year. But I think there are also many really interesting applications that haven't sort of seen the light yet. Like, for example, it, these can also be used as intellectual property management or intellectual property rights instruments. Um, so I think that is something that we will also see. And after, as I said, like the next sort of DAO hype cycle that we will see, I think there will be healthcare. And after that, hardware implementations also of blockchain as, as basically as a security layer. Since you mentioned DAOs uh, already, Astrid, but I'll put this question to Christian. Uh, I heard you really had a uh, recently had a discussion with our investment natives colleague. He's about uh, DAOs being the next thing. How do you see DAOs as investment vehicles? I mean, there was recently a DAO formed a bit for the copy of the US Constitution, the Constitution DAO, which crowdfunded like uh, 40 million US dollars. Is this kind of fast event-based or event-specific funding the future of investing? I think this has a lot of angles, you know. So this, the Constitution DAO example is very interesting from my uh, perspective. But as we all know, it then in the end failed. But it shows how fast and uncomplicated you can form syndicates to, to bid for an interesting asset. 
but you also see a lot of like investment DAOs coming up, like Neptune DAO and so on, where you also see that, that communities gather around, share their research, form like more powerful investment syndicates. And then in the end, they are somewhat like a very intelligent crowd, knowledge-funded fund. That's the one, that's the investment angle. The other angle, which is even more interesting, is the, the whole governance perspective. Yeah? And um, I think there we, we haven't even seen the tip of the iceberg what DAOs could mean for the future of not just the digital asset ecosystem, but how we actually interact from a project a company. I mean, this company is always very much associated to equity, what Aspect just mentioned. But if we really dig down deeper into, into Web3 and what Web3, how Web3 will develop, I think DAOs play a very, very crucial role and therefore also a very interesting form of investment as a token. And yeah, but it, in the end, it always depends as well how the token utility of a DAO token is, is always like how, how it's built. Yeah. And that also makes a lot of difference if it's an interesting investment target or not. But in the end, I see a very bright future for DAO as a concept overall, that DAOs or governing projects, ecosystems, joint forces, exchange their DAO token, lock them up for a certain time frame of for projects they're doing together. So, and, and that's why I said that there's only the tip of the iceberg, uh, very early still, but very interesting future and, and place there. Okay, cool. So there are new corporations between, let's say, investment entities you also foresee um, here in the DAO space, not just the, the typical crowdfunding. That, that's interesting. But, but you also somehow implicitly mentioned, okay, not every DAO project is interesting. You have to somehow select. And this is a question which goes more broadly to your investment methodology at SMAPE. How do you select targets at, at SMAPE? There are several ways we, we have that we, we find targets. We have our social capital with our very well-connected venture partners, Simon and Yuri. We have our very own great network when it comes to new projects. So that's the social capital angle. And then uh, we also have a very interesting solution um, that crawls the web 2.0, uh, let's put it that way, for uh, new interesting teams, projects, ideas all the time. And we get a, a really interesting large feed out of that daily. And we, in the end, we're looking at 80 to 100 projects of those combined sources and are talking yeah, to probably 20 to 30 projects per month, approximately, sometimes more, sometimes less. And yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big amount already yeah, for, for us. And because you, you also have some projects that go over from a due diligence perspective, go, go longer than one month. So, and yeah, that's, that's how we come to the projects when it comes to how are they the best fit for our investment uh, thesis, I would hand over to, to Astrid. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. So. Basically, what are broadly the kind of uh, things that we look for? I mean, like in any venture capitalist, I think a great team, a great product, something that really makes sense also on the blockchain. When it comes to tokens, um, we speak a lot about token utility. I mean, a lot of people are familiar with token economics pie charts where it says like broadly who will get what and what are lockup periods and all that. But we are very, very strict on token utility. So we screen the projects for if the token makes sense 
in uh, this ecosystem. And if it can really accrue the value that is sort of envisioned for it, because a lot of tokens, if you actually look out there on CoinGecko and CoinMarketCap, they're pretty much removed from their own infrastructure, so you don't really need them. And they exist more as speculative instruments. And this is something that we really don't want to see in our portfolio. So we are very, very keen to see, like, is, does token utility make sense? And is there really potential for this value accrual? And obviously also valuation. As we're looking at pre-seed seed stages here, we're looking at a rather low valuation. So, well, low in the sense of crypto is about, like, let's say 20 to 40 million um, valuation. That's already high for a, for a normal venture space, but it's broadly the kind of criteria that we have. But we've also published a blog post uh, on Medium that really outlines our whole investment narrative and the kind of sectors that we look for. And so maybe we can also link this to this uh, podcast episode that people actually can have a read through that. Yes, cool. We will do, without question. Uh, moving from SMAPE to your personal portfolio, how much do you allocate in your personal portfolio to blue chips coins and, and how much or how much goes to, let's say, kind of the pre-seed stage? So for me personally, I don't generally invest much in the range of the top 20 to uh, top 100 coins just purely out of investment strategy that if you look at the market caps and the kind of multiples that it can take, I mean, it's still decent, right? But actually, if you look at much lower coin caps, like top 250 to top 650, um, if you know what you're doing in terms of due diligence and understanding those projects and the token utility, you can get a much, much higher upside. So the those points when they come to top 100 to top 20 but that, that's broadly that and the majority of my holdings are in private rounds at the moment okay cool uh, christian how is it with you yeah maybe a little bit different i mean i'm also overexposed to early rounds private rounds for sure um But in general, I always, um, when I do exits, I also exit not into <laughs> only into fiat. I always do a, a cross exit into various other asset classes, being like physically metals or digitized metals, equities, but then as well for sure into large caps. And I traditionally for sure look, uh, look at Bitcoin, look at Ethereum and, and for sure as well at, at other large caps. So. Yeah, they, they play a, a vital role in my portfolio, yeah. some, some of the large caps. Yeah. Now, Christian, we've been talking a lot about valuations already being quite high. Of course, the entire past year, in all the asset classes have been really blowing up like crazy and being really awash with money. Of course, VC has been receiving more funds inflowing than ever before. Of course, crypto has grown the same way. Do you sometimes feel like the market is overheated? What's your general assessment at the moment? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting question, especially around the, the money flowing into VCs and especially as well token VCs. We, we saw like really um, a lot of news about billions uh, flowing into, into the market there. I think it's somehow for sure a little bit overheated uh, and we are for sure in in the bubble territory, but this can last for a while. But as we all know, bubbles tend to be very fruitful as well for future developments. And as we saw it in, in 2017 or with other bubble, bubbles earlier with the dot-com bubble and so on. 
there, when a lot of money flows into an asset class and into new project teams, and, and that's exactly what we're seeing that right now, then a lot of development happens, a lot of education and a lot of people flowing and learning new stuff and just sticking around and attracting other people. And what, what we see now with this much of money in VCs and, and in, in projects, there's at least a couple of years like firepower to develop. And this for sure leads to something great, I think. So it leads to much more people involved, much more projects being built. For sure, a lot of them will fail, but a lot of them will, will just develop something entirely new and, and very innovative. And that's, that's what's very promising. And for us, it means we have to be very picky in the selection process. Because if so much money flows in, also money gets thrown more easily after projects. And that's why you have to be very selective and have, uh, need to do a really proper due diligence in the end. Always to really pick those that are so rock solid from a team and project and tech perspective that, they that they're withstanding those very healthy shocks. No, I couldn't agree more. I think if we look back uh, also historically at the bubble of 2017, which was the biggest to date, we've seen that basically everything blew up and everything lost a lot of value, but the solid projects went up a lot higher within like less than two years. And of course, now you can hardly spot the drop of 2017 in the charts anymore if you just look at the total um, size of, of the market. And the question, of course, is can you... Uh, are you prepared for a downturn? And I think in order to be prepared, it's important to understand some scenarios that could trigger such a downturn. Now, Astrid, what do you think would it take at the moment to trigger a downturn like we saw in early 2018? I mean, there are some technological risks that you can never really sort of outweigh at that point. I mean, for us, obviously, as investors, it would always <laughs> be preferable to have a little bit of uh, bear market or a, a downturn because you get to see much lower valuations. I think there could be a number of black swan events that you could probably envisage. I think also an economic crisis, uh, which is pretty likely to happen at some, at some point again in the future, could also momentarily sort of create such a downturn, even though I think another economic crisis would likely also generate a much stronger push towards the web-free ecosystems. But I think something that is also to watch out for is overregulation of technology at large. And I don't mean only web-free technologies with that, but technologies also like AI, for example, and others. If they are misunderstood and overregulated, then that could also create a downturn. I mean, we've seen it also like the, in this year as China banned some miners from the country that it had some impact on uh, the pricing. Gladly, it was only a, a shorter term impact. But I think this is something that we also need to watch. I mean, I I'm, I'm, don't want to say regulation is bad. I think it's very important. Um, it also is there to create some standards for consumer protection. But as I always say, I think it's important to also keep this in dialogue with technology leaders so that the people who are actually trying to uh, apply new regulations, because the existing frameworks obviously cannot be mapped onto these kind of technologies, that these kind of people really understand the technology and its potential also for businesses. I think that's quite sensitive. Now, Astrid, we talked about 
how important it is to, of course, select and properly do your due diligence um, to know if the tech of a project is good, to know if the team for a project is good. And in general, in 2017, we had, I, I don't know, that's the question, I guess. Do you think the ratio of quality projects to completely useless or like mostly built on less than optimal economics and less than optimal tech projects, do you think now it's higher than it was in 2017? Or do you think we see so many, such a huge flood of new projects that maybe the average quality is actually lower? I think it's quite hard to gauge. What do you think? I mean, in general, we need to say we again, as we just dis uh, discussed, we're a little bit in a bubble time again. So we have, again, a signal-to-noise ratio that is a little bit different from that time on. So there will there is also a lot of noise that we say uh, see these days in our deal flow, in our interviews that we have, in due diligence calls. But there are actually also very, very strong signals, so really good projects that have much higher quality because, how should I say, The infrastructures are more developed. There's more tooling available. There are also more developers that have really come on board. The grade of interdisciplinarity of these projects have also become much stronger because we get to see now uh, a very good mix also of uh, economists working together with technologists. Before that, it was largely technologists who had a very good grasp of economics, but still weren't quite economists in themselves. So in general, we see much higher quality, totally agree, but we're getting again to uh, the point where one has to be very picky in where the good projects are. Most people think VC is about having a great pipeline, a great deal flow, yes, seeing more opportunity than risk, but still there is the risk side, which you also have to manage. And Astrid, you mentioned already a couple of risks. But I address this question to Christian and Astrid, feel free to, to add if you want. What kind of risks do you consider at Snape and how do you manage them along the whole investment life cycle from, let's say, deal scouting until exit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, good question. So first, you have the, I think there, there are several risks for us as a founder for our investors. The first is for sure the, in what we are investing, so how Actually, you can mitigate risk a lot, but not entirely if you really do property due diligence from each and every angle. So from a legal uh, perspective, from a tech perspective, team and, and especially use case or token ecosystem, uh, token utility due diligence. So due diligence is very important on the first hand. Yeah, Then you for sure have the tech risk from sometimes from a smart contract risk. So if If the team is not uh, building then what they what they promised, then you have this additional risk. So this is all like project or investment risk, I would say. Yeah, And then comes the fund risk. I mean, we are also responsible for the token we are holding. And uh, therefore, we need to have a very, sec very secure like infrastructure available and uh, like an internal control uh, system established, internal governance established so that no one alone could transfer those token or has access to the seed phrase alone. And so you need to have a proper custodian in place. So those are the two most important like security angles or, or risk angles for us is, is the project risk and then the operational risks for the for the fund. Yeah. And I mean from what Astrid already mentioned, which is from an investment perspective, 
at least a little bit of a de-risking aspect if you really do if you are very confident that you did a the due diligence in the right ways that we entry very early sometimes at 10 15 percent of the market price or sometimes even uh, lower so from the first market price so we already have a quite a good uh, interesting downside protection from a valuation perspective that's at least very good and, and, and much better than in the traditional vc space yeah I think um, Simon Asset already talked about the, the market risk here. How, how you're approaching the market risk? You say like, we hold on through the beer market or you try to time the market with your investments or how does this go? Um, so in, in, in an ideal world, we would love to see a bear market. So we would love to still make our fundraising then a bear market would ideally occur for a couple of months or, or a year or something like that because this would would give a little bit more space and time to actually find those gems where the valuation probably goes down a little bit and where you have probably sometimes a little bit more time to, to do the due diligence. So this would be an ideal timing for us. But nonetheless, if you really find great teams, great projects, ideas very early. Also, a continued bull cycle doesn't matter too much because when you're early enough and when the due diligence is fine, then um, you somehow hedge the market risk for yourself in any case. So, I mean, there's always, you know, there's always a market risk. As Astrid pointed out earlier, you we, we all can't really foresee some external factors that would lead uh, to a significant uh, medium or long-term downturn in, in, in the scene. Yeah, that's the risk. You, you can hedge it through those mechanics, like being very early, doing a property diligence. I think this is the best market risk hedge overall, yeah. Okay, and, and uh, HODL, I mean, uh, do you have an agreement then or will you have an agreement with your investors that you would have a kind of minimum holding time or even if the market goes down we all know normally a market cycle won't last much longer than three years then please hold on or is there a kind of agreement you plan with your investors so in general with being so early in projects it naturally comes with lockup periods and resting periods that means for those who don't know that normally when you get a better price and promise to support the project mid long term you you get a lock, you get lockup periods of six to 12 months or sometimes 18 months. And then it actually, the Westing means then the tokens get unlocked over time. Yeah. So you, you anyway can't like divest like too early anyway. So that's a natural like hodling. Uh, let's put it that way. And then an additional aspect uh, to that is that we anyway would de-risk our positions after some time. So if we would uh, have some reasonable returns on an asset and we are already able to divest, we, we would continuously divest as well yeah, to secure the fund performance, yeah, for sure. Okay, Astrid, uh, when you made like 10x, 20x or even more x, uh, uh, when do you decide to exit? Or what's your criteria? What are your criteria for exiting? On a personal note or for the fund? <laughs> no, for the fund. <laughs> yeah, no, for the fund. I mean, it's obviously, you know, once we have sort of um, reached a level where we can say we could uh, safely de-risk um, the investor's investment, then we would uh, certainly sort of exit at like 
15, 20 percent of the position and then hold it for longer and then really sort of stage the exits over time. There's also no no reason to, to wait and hold on for the 100x or whatever, but really keep it principle and say like, no, I mean, again, mitigating risks here and trying to return the money to investors at a good valuation as, as early as possible. Since we are approaching, I would not say fully the end, but but almost the end of our of interview, we have our very famous golden question now. And whoever would like to volunteer to answer it first, and the other one can add here. Our question would be today: What makes you as Smape unique as a crypto VC? Maybe Astrid, you start. I think what makes us unique or what is our edge is really the kind of legal and regulatory footprint that we have in the team. And so we haven't seen that really with other VCs in this space. There's maybe one that we are aware of that has a similar kind of edge, but we can really support projects in this respect, help them, you know, evaluate if the business model is regulatory sound. We have also helped one of our portfolio companies achieving the uh, optimal company setup. And the other thing that we take very serious is what I also mentioned at the beginning is token utility. So if we see that uh, team has a lot of potential and the product is really interesting, but you could improve the token utility model. This is not to say that we will write the whole paper for them, but you really improve it, maybe tweak it, give some more ideas how to broaden the scope. That is also something that we're very, very strong at. Cool. Christian, you want to add? Yeah, sure. And I think I mean that, that, that sums it up pretty perfectly, Astrid. And then, I mean, we are very excited about, about what we built within the last year. And maybe to add is that we, we just have a, a really great team composition. Everyone adds a lot of value in, in different aspects and areas. And that makes it so unique. We have 45 uh, plus years of uh, experience in the digital asset ecosystem and that's that's very rare and on the same time we have a lot of experience in traditional markets in law firms uh, and, and in private equity venture capital and that all together is is pretty unique i would say and and adding to that what astrid said around the, the legal regulatory go-to-market token utility assessments that we have a really great combination That sounds great, especially for, for your investors. Definitely you're a very attractive VC and competent VC to invest in. Looking at the whole discussion we had now, is there any point you would like to add or you think we haven't discussed yet an additional point you would like to make? Maybe one thing. I think in general, it's, it's such an exciting time we, we, we are having right now. A lot of institutional companies pouring into the digital asset ecosystem. We see Web 2.0 merging to some extent or trying to merge with Web 3.0. As I said, it's only only the tip of the iceberg can be seen there. So a lot of people in, in the traditional Web uh, 2.0 ecosystem don't really know what it means to be to, to tap into the Web 3.0 uh, space and what it, what it means from a governance perspective, from a tech setup perspective. But that's all now really like coming, uh, starting to roll and that's so exciting. And I think it, there can't be um, something more exciting. I think the four of us, we very much agree on that, to, to be in this space and to be already in this space for, for the last couple of years and to co-shape what's um, 
what's happening here is is just fantastic, and I'm so excited about that. I think that's something. I, I I wanted to share at the end. No, I couldn't agree with you more, Kristen. I think you made some great points there. I mean, I'm also just, you know, very pleased about uh, what we have set up at SMAPE in general. You know, the 10 months that we have spent now as a team really delivering on our investment thesis and delivering also on the whole setup and making this hopefully also a, a great journey also for our prospective investors here. And I'm really excited to see, you know, how Web3 will take on from here. I think we've had a really great push this year. You can see so many institutional investors coming into this space, more corporates evaluating this technology and even not shying away from uh, token sort of structures that were, let's say, a little bit obscure for them for the last few years. So I think this is a really exciting time to be here and it's certainly also the, the technology of our generation. Yeah, perfect. That is the perfect closing remark, the technology of our generation. Astrid and Christian, thank you so much for joining us today. That was really a great talk about how to invest in early stage crypto projects from deal sourcing to managing risk to, to exiting. And I think inspirational contact really resonates with, with our listeners. And yeah, venture capital is unscalable. Production equals the time each partner has. This is a quote from Bill Curley from Benchmark. And I think you guys have made really fulfill this quote. All the best from us. And dear listeners, we hope you like this talk with our guests. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, stay loyal, and follow the Untitled Investment Talk on social media the podcast about all things digital assets, all signal, no noise.